thank everybody for having me this morning. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. How about I pray and then we'll get started. Um, our loving Father, thank you for another day, a day that you've created. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Uh, words that we can read in English and we can understand and take to heart. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit might touch our heart with these precious words this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it was 3.30am on March the 4th, 2017, and I was lying in a hospital bed, and I wrote in my journal these words. I'm grateful, God, for your many blessings, getting into hospital, removal of my cancer, wonderful care, prayers of brothers and sisters. Please, Lord, would you give me the courage and the strength to radically give my life to Jesus. Would my old life be truly crucified? Would I grasp the pain, the suffering of the cross, yet also the mercy and unending love? Would I endure and receive in a new and marvellous way? So often when we face a crisis, an illness or a death, or as I'm starting to get used to, just getting older, the things of the world just don't seem important and our attention turns to what really matters, God. And it was a time of crisis here for Isaiah. The precious people of God had strayed a long way away from God. Uh, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, uh, verse 6, They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. Know, know what their fingers to the, to what their fingers have made. And now King Uzziah has died. He's a king who promised and delivered so much. He was a brilliant in battle. He reigned for fifty years. The economy was booming. People felt secure. And even uh, if we went to 1 Chronicles 26 and we read about the end of his life and his power and pride and unfaithfulness had taken over, I think we classify him as a good king. And now he's dead. It's a time of crisis. And so what happens? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah has this wonderful, vivid vision. He sees God seated on his throne. And whilst it's way beyond us to even grasp that, just try for a few seconds this morning to, to imagine it, just to think about what it might have been like actually seeing God having a front row seat at the greatest concert of all time. Isaiah saw God. 
He saw God in all his majesty and his glory and his perfection and his holiness. Isaiah, for those few precious moments, is present. He's visually transported into the throne room. The train of God's robe is so huge that it fills the temple. Heaven and earth have merged for Isaiah. And then he hears, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's purity and perfection are terrifying. The doorpost shakes. The temple is filled with smoke. And in the presence of his holy, holy, holy God, Isaiah cries, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is a pretty gross example, but just imagine for a minute we're plumbers and we're cleaning out sewerage pipes and all of a sudden the pipes burst and we've got raw sewerage all over us. I don't know if you can remember in Slumdog Millionaire that little scene where the little guy falls into the raw sewerage, just that's a visual. I have to look away every time I see the movie. But then, in an amazing instance, we're transported, we're standing in the middle of this pristine, newly painted home, this bedroom that's white, all white. Uh, the carpet's white, the bed linen's white, the doona's white, and we're standing there dripping with excrement, and we smell like you wouldn't believe. We're not only aware of our uncleanliness, but it's exponentially magnified by the cleanliness and the perfection that's all around us. What can we do? What can we do to escape? Where can we go? Isaiah is terrified and he cries, Woe to me, I am ruined. He grasps how unclean he is, how unworthy he is. How unworthy he is to be in the presence of this pure and holy God. Our pure and holy God. And then remarkably and wonderfully into this state of complete hopelessness and filth and sheer terror, God actually makes the first move. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God showers Isaiah in his grace and washes him clean. As that hot coal touches Isaiah's lips, burning judgment becomes rescue and redemption. And so Isaiah, a broken man, hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send 
and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Many years ago, um, we had a mission dinner at our church and a guy by the name of Magnus Linda, he was serving with OMF at the time, came and spoke to us. Uh, at the end of the night, um, our pastor interviewed Magnus and he asked Magnus, was there anything that, any final words that he'd like to leave with us as a church? And Magnus could have said any number of things about the organisation or about the needs of World Mission or about how many unreached people there are in the world. But he said four very, very simple, profound words. Be surrendered to God. You know, I've been helping people go abroad for the last 13 years. In fact, I was standing here in 2010, I believe, 2010 when you guys first went to Mongolia. And I can assure you that most people don't go and serve amongst unreached people because they feel guilty. It's not because they've listened to a talk or a sermon that they feel obligated. It's their life by desire. They're overwhelmed by God's goodness and His grace and they're overwhelmed that He's washed them clean and they've received His mercy. And they want to praise Him and they want to surrender their life to Him. And they want to do whatever it is that God's got planned for them. And God's plan and purpose for Isaiah was really, really tough. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turned and healed. You see, God had made up his mind that these people were to bear the judgment of their ongoing sin. It's a really hard message. God commissions Isaiah to teach a truth designed to push Judah and the people of Israel further away from God. As Jesus says in John chapter 8, 45, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And devastatingly, the truth that God asked Isaiah to speak would not be popular. It wouldn't be a box office hit. It wouldn't be a bestseller. The truth would not be believed, and the truth would remain hidden. Like Isaiah, we're, called, we're not called to success. We're called to faithfulness. And so Isaiah appeals to the Lord, How long, Lord? And the Lord answers, Until the cities lie in ruin and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravished, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. You know, some of us will be called to ministry in really lean times. We can't assume that when we pray and we witness and we share that there will be a revival or people will come to know the Lord. It may just be that our faithful announcing and living out the truth has a different purpose. But the overriding and overwhelming message of Isaiah's prophecy and indeed the Bible in general is that whilst God is perfectly just, he desperately desires to heal and to save. 
And that saving is from people for all nations. And so we have this wonderful thread of hope at the end of this chapter. But as the terebinth and the oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in this land. You know, in Australia, especially in recent years, we know too well the devastation of fires, don't we? In seconds, raging flames can wipe out bushland and homes and communities. But that charred smell of smouldering tree stumps gradually disappears, and when it does, it's replaced by those little green buds that we see coming up from the stumps, that new growth. And like the new growth in these green buds, God's holy seed will also rise to bring life, eternal life, in our dark and dry and so often hurting world. Isaiah's generation and many of the generations that followed may have experienced ruin and utter forsakenness. But Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. We know how fortunate we are that that shoot from the stump is the Lord Jesus. So what to do? How on earth is this ancient text relevant to us today? Well, if we take nothing else away from this morning, it would be to affirm that our greatest need, no matter where we are or who we are, or where we live, is to be washed clean and for the stench of our sin to be taken away. In Isaiah's vision, the Lord commissioned seraphim with a burning coal. For us, God the Father commissions his Son, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Seed, to become a man to experience the desolation that Judah and all of Israel would experience. Separation from his father, nailed to a cross, absorbing the filth and the uncleanliness of not only our sin, but the sin of the world. Christ crucified, God's holy justice, intersecting with God's free unmerited and amazing grace. But you know, sadly for so many people in so many places, they don't know where or how to find that shower of grace. They remain lost and unclean. You know, they don't even have the chance to reject the truth and make the choice to stay dirty because they don't have anyone to tell them or direct them where to go to find a shower. There's only five billion people in the world that are either Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, practicing folk religion, or say they don't have a religion at all. And over three billion of them don't know anyone who knows Jesus. There are 1.5 billion people in the world 
that don't have a Bible, or a full Bible anyway, in their own language. And, you know, Murray and Elizabeth know Mongolia better than I do. And there's a, a, a fellowship of Christian believers there. But it's a country of 3.28 million. And 3.21 million, 98%, are still unreached. So many perishing with little chance to hear. A few years ago, our national director visited Afghanistan well and truly before Taliban had resumed their power. At the time, we had three Aussies in northern Afghanistan on a team. And when Simon, our national director, met them, he asked them a question. What if you were forced to leave? One of the single women with tears in her eyes replied, who will tell the women in the prison about Jesus? I can't When we hear the voice of Isaiah say, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do we hear ourselves? Because it's not until we've come to the end of ourselves when we grasp that we can't solve the problem. We just can't wash ourselves clean enough. It is then, and only then, that we stand alongside Isaiah in the presence of our holy, holy, holy God, completely broken and willing to shower in his grace and be touched by his mercy and then glad to surrender ourselves to him. Perhaps God is asking you to teach Sunday school. Perhaps he's asking you to love your lesbian neighbour or to teach conversational English to a refugee family. To be honest with your workmates tomorrow when they say, how was your Sunday or what did you get up to? Or perhaps he's asking you to teach in a school in Cambodia or Bangladesh. To use your healthcare professional skills in Paraguay or Bolivia or Jordan. Maybe he's asking you to teach English to some Somali refugees in Ethiopia or surfing to adventure travellers in Indonesia or business schools to prostitutes in India. Or maybe he's asking you to endure with Murray and Elizabeth minus 40 degree winters in Mongolia, or to sit in the dirt under a tree around a fire in Togo or Chad or Ireland. Or perhaps God is just asking you to devote yourself to praying each day, each week, each month, for a friend or a neighbour or an unreached people somewhere in the world. Where are we focusing our attention? On the things of the world or on what really matters? God. Let me leave you with a quote I come to really love from the great reformer and theologian John Calvin. 
For until men and women recognise that they owe everything to God, that they're nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him. They will never yield in willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to me. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing to have your word in our own language. I pray, Father, that it would speak to our hearts deeply and dearly. Thanks for your deep desire that we know you. We acknowledge before you this morning that we are sinners in desperate need of a saviour. Thank you for Jesus. Would we grasp with overwhelming joy your grace and would we shout in it every single day. Might we give ourselves to you truly and sincerely and willingly serve you every day of our life. In Jesus' name.